I want to give us this morning sort of three big picture categories of people. It's not comprehensive, but in a sense, there's three big picture categories of people. The first one we call a secularist. Did I say that right? Sort of southern, wasn't it? Yeah, secularist. <laughs> they believe people are born, die, and become worm food. There's no afterlife with them. The second category of people would be what we would call and have called a cultural Christian. They've been around church. They've maybe been raised in the church. And they're, they're fully engaged in the things of this world. And they either make an assumption about the afterlife or the next world that they are sort of in, okay, because they've been around it and smelled it and tasted it and touched it and heard about it, or, or, or either they'll just deal with it when it comes. But from day to day, they don't think much about eternity, if the truth be known. And many times, it's only them that know that unless you're close to them and you can make observations about their lives and their faults. And then the third category would be what I call a legit Christian follower of Christ. They understand that everything in this world has to do with the next world, with the afterlife. That everything done here registers there. That both this world and the afterlife world or afterworld are deeply connected, that there really is a very thin line between the here and the hereafter. And that thin line really is a heartbeat or breath away. In Luke 12, Monty taught the passage last week, Jesus is warning about the possibility of living this life without thinking about the next life. That when a person comes to faith in Christ, that they also must grasp this truth, that this life has everything to do with the next life. Jesus is eager in Luke 12 to let his followers know and get this idea that this world matters in the next world and that this truth really does affect the way you and I live, the way his followers live in the here and now. Jesus wants his followers to know that every single moment you live in the physical world is also a moment in the spiritual world, that they're really all in the same, that now and eternity happen all at once, and that what we do here registers in eternity, and how it registers there is really what matters most. Jesus really does want his people to know that we are to live in light of that, that his people would, that we would, his followers would, legit Christ followers would reorient all of their life to the world to come. That we would practice in some ways, and that's the title of our message this morning, vertical living in a horizontal world. Jesus wants us to know that nothing is irrelevant, that the Christian life is a reorient or reoriented life that certainly lives in this world, but not according to the rules of this world. Paul tells us in Colossians 3, set our minds and our hearts 
on the things above in daily living. Last week, Monty taught the first few verses of Luke 12. And in Luke 12, 13, it's a parable. It's a parable of the rich fool. A guy interrupts Jesus and says, Jesus, tell my brother to give me the inheritance. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus tells the man who is rich in this world and yet is a poor fool. Imagine Jesus calling us a poor fool. He calls this man a poor fool toward the world to come. Jesus says, I'm not interested in doing what you ask of me. Jesus knows that his heart is locked 100% on this world, the hearing now. He is consumed by money that is supposedly coming to him. Because Jesus' interest in money is in how it is to be connected from this world to the next. And in verse 15, Jesus tells him that. He says, tells them to watch out, be careful of money. It can fool you and make you so focused on this life that you neglect the next life. This self-absorbed man in the parable of the rich fool, he has his self-built barns full of grain, was called a fool because he lived as if this world was all there is. The rich fool failed to see the connection between this world and the next, and he was shocked that his soul was required of him that very night. In verse 21 of Luke 12, Jesus says, speaking of men like him, like the rich fool, Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The rich fool had no awareness to God nor was he rich toward God. So now, starting in verse 22 in our passage, Jesus uses the word therefore. Therefore, in light of what you just heard, that's a key word for us in studying the Bible, in light of what I just taught you, I want to address my specific followers with how this truth of what a man does here really matters in the thereafter. I want to address how this truth gets worked out in my followers' lives, in my life, and in your life, and in their life. That what we do here registers in eternity, and how it registers there is what really matters. That the world, that that world, the world to come, is really the main world. And so I think all of us, if I'm you, this is how I felt studying the passage. I think all of us should be sort of sitting on the edge of our seats. Having this Psalm 139 moment that we're about to hear from Jesus himself and how we deal with money and things in light of eternity. If there's ever a topic that you and I need to be paying close attention to, it is this one. The Psalm 139 moment, Psalm 139 puts it this way. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. To have this prayer, Lord, speak to us this morning. 
so that I will live in a way that the world to come is the main world. Sitting on the edge of your seats, ready? Let's read. Luke 12, 22. And he, Jesus, said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Oh, how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom. And these things will be added to you. Oh, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where there's no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Jesus gives us two big picture uh, statements about this passage. And the first one in your notes tells us, he says, do not let anxiety about or desires for material things occupy your heart and mind. Do not let anxiety about or desires for material things occupy your heart and mind. So, Basic question this morning, how can we tell if our hearts and minds are being occupied by the things of this world? From our text, it tells us if we are anxious about material things. And if you're craving it, meditating on it, longing for it, if putting our trust, putting our trust in it, finding security in it, getting our status and identity from it, finding refuge or comfort in it. Now, if there's anything that connects you and I together as humans, certainly one of the top three must be anxiety and worry in this broken world when everything and anything can go wrong. Can you just get an amen to that? Yeah. We all feel that especially about our material needs and the money it takes to provide for ourselves. So I want to be empathetic here. Jesus is not just saying, stop it. He's going to lay out an incredible piece by piece, point by point, spiritual truth that tells us we don't have to live that way for those of us who know Christ. 
Author Summers Roche said this about anxiety. Anxiety is a thin stream of fear trickling through the mind. If encouraged, it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts have drained. I have felt that kind of anxiety where everything else that was happening in my life was filtered through that thought. I'm sure you have too. Thank goodness that Jesus this morning offers a solution to that. In verses 22 and 23, uh, Jesus is really here drawing out the implications of the previous verses that Monty talked last week. And he summarizes that with the statement that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Life, food, and clothes, they're not separate things here. It's really another way to say that it is the totality of what is needed for basic human existence. Jesus tells us that this kind of anxiety is a result of confusing a confusion about what life is really about, that life is much more than our bodies, that life is much more than food, that life is much more than clothes. At the basic level, it is a failure to understand that once we have come to Christ, we are not here just to exist, that God really does have a purpose for us, for our lives. And big picture, Everyone wants to know what God's purpose is for us, what God's will is for us. In Christ, big picture, it is to know him and to make him known. Our lives matter once we come to Christ. And whatever way he may do that, using your gifting, your calling, your work, your home, your family, where you live, who you interact with, is to know him and to make him known. That we are to effect eternity. The command there in those verses of do not be anxious tells us that the security that people look for in possessions is to be found only in God. And that there is a real danger of storing up treasure for oneself and not for God. That dealing with anxiety by pursuing more things is not a profitable way to deal with anxiety. And I think most of us have tried. <laughs> Jesus is saying that living is more than having. Life is more than just physical existence, he's saying. Because there's also a spiritual world, and it is that world that truly matters. Worry about food and clothing is misdirected and it fails to focus on what is most important. So I say to us, as a great reminder this morning, hopefully comforting, if God redeemed you and brought you to himself, and he did, and if God brought you into his kingdom, and he did, Jesus is saying he will sustain you. He will provide for you so that you can use your gifts for his glory. In verse 24, Jesus begins to illustrate. He uses his first of several illustrations from nature. And he, he uses here the illustration of the ravens or crows. And if there's any uglier 
louder, nasty bird in the universe, it is a raven or a crow, is it not? But he uses them to show us how he cares for us and provides for us. The raven, Jesus is saying, is a material witness to God's faithful provision of food. I read this week in my studies that Israel has the largest migration of birds in the entire world. How about that? Some where it's located. Matter of fact, still modern day, they take out more pilots than maybe any other country. They've around their airports actually had to move ponds and water sources so birds would fly other places. And so Jesus, standing there with ravens and crows everywhere, says, "Look at them. Look at the ravens." An unclean bird to eat. Anybody ever ate fried raven? <laughs> Dove, quail, duck, turkey. I ain't eating a raven. I'll go see Jesus before I eat a raven. He's saying even this bird, if God feeds even these, how much more will he feed his followers? Jesus is saying that our anxiety is a failure to understand God's divine provision. Our anxiety is a failure to understand how comprehensive God's care is. The birds do not have barns. The birds do not plant and reap. They do not farm. I've never seen a crow or a raven with a shovel in his hand or a rake in his hand or driving a tractor. Well, cartoons, I have seen one doing in cartoons, but not in real life. The birds are an example, look, not of idleness, because they hardly ever stop until night, but they are an example of freedom from anxiety. Dr. Daryl Bach put it this way. He says, they, the ravens, are not always worrying that the supply of worms may run out, Yet they do not expect the worms to crawl down their beaks. When we are anxious about our provision, we are failing to see the signs of God's gracious presence around us, even in the birds. But if we are able to see God's gracious presence around us, our view of God changes and so does our anxieties. Skip down, skip verses 25 and 26 and go down to his second illustration in nature. Verses 27 and 28. He speaks of the lilies and the grass in the fields. And he says here, lilies, where ravens were a material witness to God's provision for food, lilies here are a material witness of God's faithful provision of clothing. Jesus is pointing to these flowers and to the grass around them in hopes that his audience will once again see the gracious hand of God and the Heavenly Father. Lilies don't work or spin. He says, look, Solomon in all of his glory, someone worked incredibly hard to dress Solomon and decorate the palace and the whole deal there to make all that beauty. He says, these these lilies, they don't do anything. 
They just bloom, die, bloom, die. Now we lived in Ohio, when we lived in Ohio, behind us, this guy had a 20-acre lily farm. Organic lilies. I thought, okay, what does that mean, organic? You know what it basically means? You don't use any chemical to kill the weeds around them. So what do you think this guy did every day? He went out and made organic lilies by hand pulling weeds 10, 12 hours a day. He didn't like it when I put Roundup around my trees next to his land. <laughs> I made them un or unorganic. He actually left. He didn't say anything. He's a nice fellow. We had a good time together, but he left me a sign. No poison allowed right by my pine trees. It was beautiful. For much of the year, every day, we'd wake up and see 20 acres of lilies just doing their thing. <clears throat> they just bloom because God the Father provides all that they need. And then in verse 28, he speaks of the grass. It says, God even clothes the grass. The grass is here today, cut up, used for fuel the next day. Here's the point. Grass is insignificant. It may be the most insignificant thing in all of creation. And yet God still attends to this part of creation. If he will even take care, Jesus is saying, of the grass... How much more will he take care of his own people? That's the argument. Now jump back up to verses 25 and 26. Because there's another reason that anxiety about food and clothing and provision is foolish. And the reason is simply this. Because anxiety is foolish because it is also futile. Jesus reminds us that anxiety simply doesn't help us. It doesn't work. He says in verse 25, can worry add a single hour to your life? Answer, it can take away some hours and some days and some months and some years. Worry has never produced a single bite of food. Worry has never produced a single stitch of clothing. It only takes away from our life, not adds to it. Worry simply, and here's his point, disbelieves God the Father's love and care for his children. That's why he says, oh, you a little faith. Worry is disbelief. That God the Father loves and cares for his children. Back down to verses 29 and 30. Here's what Jesus does here. He returns to his first command, much like in verse 22 about do not be anxious. And he puts it this way. My followers are not to worry about nor be anxious about basic needs. The word for worry there. Is a little different than the first word in verse 22 of anxious. It is a picture of emotional insecurity to get worked up. You ever been worked up over provisions and need and 
money and payment. Anybody ever worked up? Nod your head with me. Yeah. It ain't pretty, is it? I've been there. One very memorable time for me, I might have shared this years ago here, but I haven't forgot it, is that Jen and I want staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, and we got a paycheck twice a month, and we would get our paycheck in the mail during those days, back in the 1940s, it seems like now, and I'd got an envelope, and I opened it up, and it said, Randolph J. Patton, zero dollars and zero cents. What that meant was we didn't have money in our staff account, missionary account, to get a paycheck. So I got a zero paycheck, young family, zero savings, because we were making peanuts. And do you think I got worked up? Yeah, I got worked up. I was driving down to a Bible study that I was leading with the Cincinnati Bengals and Reds, and I was sobbing in the car. I said, Lord, I don't know what to do. I just got to this ministry assignment. If I go home, I, it feels tension there to raise additional support. I don't have time. I knew this was sort of coming. I was hoping to get some things in gear support-wise. I said, Lord, I'm in a bad place. Drive up to the study. Got to dry up my tears. I go lead the study. And after the study, one of the Cincinnati Bingo players, I'll tell you who he is, David Klingler. First-round pick of the Bengals. He's a seminary professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. I've never met another guy who had so much money and yet sought the kingdom as David Klingler. And after study, he said, Jeff, how, how do y'all get paid with Campus Crusade? And I was like... <laughs> and I told him, my lips started quivering. I was like, oh, no, I'm, I'm crying. I was even crying in those days, and I was trying to stop it. He said, well, what's going on? And I told him, and he put his arm around me and laughed so loud. He said, well, that ain't no problem. And he wrote us a $12,000 check to put it in our ministry account. God was teaching me from an early age, you can trust me if you'll seek me. And we were, not perfectly, but if you seek me, I will provide for your basic needs. I love this last part in verse 30. And the reason we do not need to worry and get emotionally worked up in verse 30, your father already knows your needs. He already knew my needs. As I drove in my truck down to northern Kentucky, he already knew. Matter of fact, Jesus argues here that unbelievers seek first daily provisions. They sink their whole existence. A non-Christian sinks their whole existence in them. They meditate on them. They get their worth from them. What they have is who they are. Living is having to those who don't know Christ. 
and they suffer great pain of their anxiety because of it. In contrast to those who are in the kingdom of God in Christ, for us, the Father knows his children need such things. We are different from other people because of our relationship to the Father. That's what Jesus is saying here. And we don't worry because he will care for us. So that's point one. Point two is, as we wrap up, Divest in this world in order to invest in the world to come. Listen to the radical statement by Jesus in verses 31. In verse 31. Instead of worrying about provisions, instead seek his kingdom and these things, these provisions, these basic needs will be added to you. Instead of being anxious about food and clothing and possessions, seek the things of God and the kingdom of God, and God your Father will provide all that you need. Radical, but my goodness, how compelling and comforting. Our priority is, priorities as Christ followers of Jesus is to habitually seek him in his kingdom. Even the tense of the verb there, seeking, puts it this way, keep seeking his kingdom. That that's what our lives are about. That that's what you and I do as Christ followers. That that's our first interest, our first priority. That's what we do on a daily basis. We seek his kingdom. We are to be engaged in the pursuit of representing God on earth as his ambassadors, to walk with him. And the benefits of this seeking and walking is God's commitment and promise to care for us, to provide the fundamental things of our basic needs. Verse 32, I love this, the tenderness of the assurance for God the Father to take care of us is expressed in the words, little flock. It is a picture of God's fragile children, us, in a scary world, yet a fragile children that is cared for by a powerful and gracious Father. That's comforting. Not only does the Father promise to care for us, but he is actually pleased to do it. Is that amazing? Look what it says. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Good pleasure there is another word of saying it is his will to give you the kingdom. God the Father is not going, are they praying to me again? Are they seeking me again? Do I got to give them something again? We don't get on his nerves. We're seeking him and his kingdom. The blessings of the kingdom is the product of pursuing the kingdom. This secure relationship with God the Father brings stability and therefore the absence of anxiety. Jesus is making that point. In verse 33, Jesus points his followers to a permanent treasure. Give generously to the kingdom, Jesus says. 
One aspect of pursuing the kingdom of God means to be free to give generously with our money toward the things of the kingdom. The value of this kind of action is that it can never be taken away or destroyed, Jesus says. What we do here registers there. Every cent we give to eternal things is accounted for in the first national bank of heaven. Jesus says, when you put it there, no thief can steal it. No moth can destroy it. No financial advisor can manipulate it. It will not rot, and no one else can get it when you die. It's put in your account in heaven. Man, that's good words. An eternal savings account in heaven. An eternal, I was fixing to say MRI, but uh, what am I looking for? You know what I'm looking for. One of them. <laughs> Shows you how much of a money expert I am. <laughs> I, I've, I've had a, yeah, I've been more on the medical side of MRI the last few months than I have the financial side. Faithfulness to pursue the kingdom of God this side of heaven reaps rich and everlasting eternal rewards. I'll tell you this. Jesus wants this to be clear. God knows and notices when and where people open up their eternal accounts. And those eternal accounts will remain forever. That didn't, want, that didn't make me want to give less. That makes me want to give more. And that's the point here. You know, the New Testament has a consistent theme in it, and it is this. And Jesus is speaking to this consistent theme throughout the whole New Testament. It is a lack of attachment to possessions, to things, to money. Listen to what Paul writes, his protege Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's just one of many places. But godliness with contentment is great gain, Paul writes. For we brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of it. There's no U-Hauls connected to any hearse I've ever seen going down the street. But if we have food and clothing with these things, we shall be content. For those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And all you have to do is pick up a newspaper, look on the internet every day, and you'll see that coming true. For the love of money, not money, the love of it, the trust in it, to get something from, from it, the, the, when money is not attached to eternity, like the rich fool, is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O oh man and woman of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, 
love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. That's the walk and seek. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you were made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. As for the rich, that's all of us, by the way, in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on uncertainty of riches, amen, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up, therefore storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And then Jesus sums it up with a very familiar statement in verse 34. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Again, Dr. Darrell Bach puts it this way. If one's bank deposit is made in heaven first national, then the real choices of a man's life will be governed by that perspective. If a man's bank account or deposit is made in heaven first national, then a man's life will reflect that. All of life will reflect what is a priority to him. And that's what Jesus is saying here. This, folks, is vertical living in a horizontal world. And it is not for just top-level Christians. It is for every Christ follower, everyone who has placed their trust in his shed blood to become his child, this is the living God requires and calls us to. So I end with a question this morning. Are you living a life that makes sense only if there's another world after this world? Are you living a life that makes sense only if there's another world after this world? Because what you do here registers there. Take a minute this morning to ask yourself the question, so what? To ask the Lord, Psalm 139, Lord, seek my heart. What changes need to be made? What perspectives need to be changed? What kind of thinking needs to develop around God and his care for us? as his children, and to invest in eternity. Take a minute to ask those questions.